Welcome to this podcast coming to you from the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership between the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the University of Maryland's Physics Department. JQI researchers study and explore quantum science and its applications. Quantum reality isn't as weird as many people think. Really, it's not. And I'm here to help you out. I'm Philip Shuey, and I'm here with my JQI colleague, Steve Ralston. Hi, Phil. Hi. In other shows, we've looked at how scientists first figured out that energy comes in chunks and that light comes in chunks. Now we're going to see how quantum ideas apply to atoms, especially to the internal properties of atoms. You could think of an atom as being a hotel with lots of rooms, each room corresponding to an allowed energy level. Not all the rooms have to be occupied, but any electron in the atom has to reside in one of those rooms. And how do we know this? Well, the best evidence for quantum atoms and the special energy levels comes from the light coming out of atoms. Steve, can you please give us some example of energy levels in action? My favorite example is actually the yellow parking lot lights. Uh, so you, you may remember when you go park in the lot at night and you notice when you come out that your car is some bizarre color. And that's because the lights are sodium vapor lamps. And these lights have sodium atoms in them, and sodium atoms only emit yellow light. The reason they only emit yellow light is because that's the difference in energy between two levels of the atom. And that gives us a good reminder that the energy of light is related to its color. And uh, LED brake lights, how do those work? So that's another example. Um, in this case, it's actually atoms, but they're coming from a semiconductor material in the light-emitting diode. And the electron and, and the, the absence of an electron get together and produce an energy, and that's the light we see. Yeah, so you really just want to think of it as the atom is making a what we call a transition, so it's changing from one energy level to another, and we have to conserve energy in physics, and so that energy shows up in the color of the light coming out. I guess we'd better go back and talk about atoms themselves uh, before getting very far about talking about the light coming from atoms. The idea of atoms has been around a long time, way back to the Greeks thousands of years ago. They didn't get very far with that idea of atoms because it was more of a philosophical thing. The, the science of atoms didn't really get going until the 19th century, and on through the 19th century, we learned more and more about atoms, and uh, we invented a, a chart of atoms, the periodic table, but we still didn't know what was inside atoms. And, and maybe the most conspicuous thing about atoms, other than their chemical properties, is the light that comes out of them. That tells us a lot. Uh, Steve, tell us about what atomic spectra are. So if you take, say, light from the sun and you send it through a prism, we all know that you get the rainbow. Now, this is the spectrum. So what we're doing is we're what we call dispersing the different colors in different directions. And since the sun contains essentially all the different colors, we see a continuous rainbow. If I did that same thing with my sodium vapor lamp, I would just see two lines of yellow light. And that's because specific atoms just emit specific colors. Those are the telltale signs, sort of like a, like a set of fingerprints that the FBI keeps on each, on each atom. Each atom has its own set of atomic lines, emission lines. And, and sodium, you say, the, the chief lines are in the, in the yellow part of the spectrum. Yeah, so there is a whole industry. They, they like to put uh, various materials in a Bunsen burner. And it heats it up, and those atoms would emit light, and then you collect the spectra, so then you 
identify the different lines and you can figure out what the atom was. And then at the end of the 19th century, then, only then, did the lid really come off on our understanding of atoms because we started making lots of Nobel Prize winning discoveries. J.J. Uh, Thompson found the electron, Röntgen discovered x-rays, Becquerel discovered radioactivity, uh, and so suddenly the atom was, was, uh, was supposed to be a simple thing, but it seems to have all these moving parts inside. Uh, and then in the year 1911, we just celebrated its centenary, a huge discovery was made by Ernest Rutherford in England. Steve, tell us about that. So, you know, we were talking about spectrum for pretty much 100 years from sort of Fraunhofer and 1814 on. We had this idea that spectra were associated with atoms. So the sodium atom has its spectrum, the hydrogen atom has its spectrum. And they just had no clue as to what that meant. They knew it had to have something to do with what was the guts of an atom, but they didn't really understand. So as Thompson discovered the electron and then x-rays were discovered, alpha particles were discovered, other forms of radioactivity, we started to get the idea anyway that atoms could be composed of something simpler, such as electrons. Thompson came up with a cutely named model called Plum Pudding Model. What's the plum part? Well, I'm not even sure what the plum part is, but my understanding of British plum pudding is it has raisins in it. And Thompson imagined that an atom was a uniform, positively charged material dotted with raisins, which were the, his electrons. Positive jam and, and, and negatively charged raisins. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But so then where Rutherford came in is he had a couple of guys in his lab, Geiger and Marsden, Marsden an undergraduate at the time, and he had them sending alpha particles through very thin foils and looking at the scattering of these particles. And to their surprise, they discovered that a very small fraction, but nonetheless a measurable fraction of the alpha particles bounced backwards rather than going through the foils. And I guess they were astonished at this, and it's been this experiment has been compared to shooting a rifle at a bale of hay with an anvil buried inside. If the anvil weren't there, the bullets would go right through, but since the anvil is there, the bullets, some of them, come right back. That's what Rutherford understood. If he took Thompson's plum pudding model, the only thing there were electrons, and it was well known that alpha particles are much heavier than electrons, so you can't get a heavy particle to bounce off a light particle and go backwards. So Rutherford realized that the atom has to have something big and massive in the center. So this is what we now call the nuclear model of the atom, uh, a big heavy anvil in the middle and little light electrons uh, zipping around the edge. That's right. So in the end, we now think of having the nucleus, which has protons and neutrons. Rutherford didn't know anything about neutrons at the time, but a heavy positive charge, which was almost the entire mass of the atom, and then surrounded by these very light electrons. So now the story's going to start changing very rapidly. 1911, we know the furniture inside an atom, but we don't know quite how the stuff works, the, the negative electrons and the positively charged nucleus. And this guy, his name is Niels Bohr, he came forward and said, excuse me, um, I think I have the explanation. And his great idea, his desperate attempt to explain atomic spectra, was to say that the electrons zipping around the nucleus, uh, they may look like planets, the, 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 the nucleus in the middle might look sort of like the sun, 
But there's a special caveat. The electrons could only have fixed energies. They existed in fixed energy levels. But Steve, I, I, th- I understand uh, Niels Bohr's theory, as sensible as it seemed, uh, met with a lot of complaining right off. Why was that? Well, and Bohr understood this entirely, but it was well known that if I had a accelerating charged particle, like an electron going around in an orbit, it loses energy. So if you took any of our understanding of classical physics and electromagnetism, and you imagine an electron orbiting a nucleus, what it would do is it would lose energy and just spiral in and crash into the nucleus. Like a comet. Exactly. But Bohr just said, okay, this is a microscopic system. It behaves differently. So let me just imagine that the electron's orbit is stable. And he understood, and if you look back at his original paper explaining what's now known as the Bohr model, he very explicitly said, well, you look at what Planck did with black body spectrum, that didn't really correspond with classical electromagnetism, so I'm going to come up with another idea that doesn't correspond with electromagnetism. Weird ideas love company. Exactly. So in a sense, he got cover because of what the success of Planck's ideas you know, about 10 years earlier. So they didn't like Planck's idea of quantum energy, but they came to like it after a while. And then they didn't like Einstein's idea of light being quantum uh, because that violated certain rules. But they sort of came to like that, too. And now here they didn't like Bohr's idea of quantum atoms because it broke rules. This is a huge break with Newtonian mechanics of 300 years. Uh, But they finally came to like uh, Niels Bohr, too. But Bohr's theory wasn't completely successful, either. Can you say something about that, Steve? Well, so what Bohr really did was, going back to our idea of spectra, the spectrum of the hydrogen atom was very well studied and very well understood, and it had a certain pattern in terms of a very regular pattern of the lines. And Bohr's model fit that beautifully. You know, it was quantitatively and qualitatively exactly on. So it it looked great. But... Bohr's model didn't explain anything with more than one electron. So the helium atom, the carbon atom, sodium atom, all these atoms, Bohr's model didn't work. So where Bohr's model worked, it was for the hydrogen atom. So in some sense, you know, he knew he was on the right track, but clearly there was something there that was not quite right. Nowadays, Bohr's model uh, from the year 1913 is called, rather patronizingly, the old quantum theory because only a few years later in the 1920s, as we are going to see in several podcasts, it was replaced by something even better. What we want to do now is to steer the discussion towards some cutting-edge research involving energy levels right now. So to do that, we're bringing in another of our JQI colleagues, Wes Campbell. Hi there, Wes. Howdy. So help us out with the quantum jargon. What is an energy level? An energy level is basically a configuration of all the little parts that make an atom. So an atom has electrons, neutrons, protons inside it, as we all learned in our uh, primary school science courses. But we can arrange them in different ways, and each way will, in general, have a different energy. Is it sort of like um, the hotel rooms in a, in a large uh, skyscraper hotel in, the, in midtown Manhattan? You, you occupy the rooms. You can be in one room but not another room? That's right. And uh, maybe the number of people in the hotel will stay constant. They can move around to different rooms. 
number of people determine what type of atom it is. Is it a carbon atom or a phosphorus atom or a hydrogen atom? So let's go to try to build up uh, a mental image of what happens, how an electron goes from one energy level to another. The electron in the atom is going to absorb or emit a chunk of light, a photon. What kind of process is that? How long does the electron do it? And what's happening while it's absorbing or emitting a photon? Well, one of the things that we can talk about with uh, the question of how long it takes an atom to emit a photon is we can talk about the properties of the photon because it won't be the same answer for every atom. So if we talk about the properties of light, we talk about the polarization or the color of the light, but a photon will also have a particular size and shape. And for many of the transitions that we know and love in the laboratory, a typical photon is about 10 feet long. It takes it about the atom about 10 nanoseconds to emit this photon. 10 nanoseconds at the speed of light is 10 feet. So it can do this 100 million times in one second. Now, in, in the physics lab that you work in, you do specific things with atoms and you tickle them with lasers and you get them to uh, emit light or absorb light. How do you put an electron in a specific energy level inside an atom? Uh, well, there are two things that we can do there. One thing is to just check to see if it's already in the energy level we want. And that sounds really silly. It's a crude method, but that's the place where we typically start an experiment. You want to know if the electron is already in hotel room 25. That's right. And we can measure the atom uh, by zapping it with lasers, and we can tell whether or not it's in room 25. Now, if we find out that it isn't, we can scramble it up and then check again. Uh, and again, that sounds quite crude, but this is really the way things work in terms of quantum mechanics. We have probability distributions and so forth. But once we measure that this electron is in the right place, we know for sure that that is where it is. And so now you know that you've got the electron in room 25, energy level number 25, but you want to put it in energy level number 46. How do you do that? How do you get it to change its room? Well, we do this by shining light on it that has just the right color and shape uh, to drive that transition. In some sense, if it was in room, was it 46? <laughs> if it was in room 46 and it made a transition spontaneously to room 25, it would emit light. That light would have these various properties. It would have a particular color, a particular shape, a particular length for the photon. We do the opposite thing. We shine exactly that same kind of photon onto the atom. It absorbs that photon and goes uh, up to the excited state. So a big part of the experiment you're doing with atoms and putting them in energy levels must be manipulating lasers to shine in upon those atoms at just a certain frequency. And if the laser doesn't have that basic frequency, is there some way you can modify the laser to have that frequency of light? That's right. In some sense, that's most of what we're doing down there in the lab. Uh, we have an army of students and researchers who are most of the time playing with lasers, trying to make the light be exactly the right type of light to cause the atom to do what we want it to do. So the laser light is one of the uh, best controlled things uh, that we can create as human beings. We can create laser light that has extremely well-controlled properties. And so uh, we've gotten very good at that over the years, and that's what we spend our time doing. So let me ask a trickier question. We've talked about how you put electrons into this or that energy level and how you can get them to move from one level to another. 
what's this I hear about putting an electron in two energy levels at the same time? How do you do that? Well, since we're shining laser light on the atom to force the electron to go between two states, uh, that will take some amount of time, as we discussed earlier. Maybe 10 nanoseconds would be a typical time. In order to get the electron to be in both the ground and excited state simultaneously, we simply turn the laser on for half that amount of time. We can turn it on for 5 nanoseconds. And right when we're done with that process, this atom can be in this very delicate state. The electron can be in this very delicate state called a superposition state, where it's in both the ground and excited state simultaneously. Is it inclined to go to the one or the other, the ground state down below or the, uh, the excited state up above? Or how do you keep the electron in this schizoid state of, of, of two energy levels at the same time? Well, the short answer to that is that we leave it alone. We need to make sure that nothing comes along and bumps into the atom, that nothing uh, shines more laser light on the atom to cause it to change its state. We have to make sure that nothing can measure whether the atom is in the ground state or excited state. So the first thing we have to do is make sure it's not touching anything. So we have to levitate it, and we levitate these atoms using electric or magnetic fields. And it's hovering in the middle of a container called a vacuum chamber. And this is just a container, and we can remove all the air from the container. So now the atom is not sitting on anything, which is important, and it is also not being bumped by any air molecules uh, that might otherwise destroy the superposition state. It's sort of strange um, it, to, to, to yield all the quantum information you can eventually or, or appreciate the quantum process. You can't look at the electron. You can't know too much about it. Is that right? That's right. And that's one of the reasons you might say that you and I don't encounter a whole lot of this very strange quantum mechanical uh, world in our daily life. Uh, you know, we are dealing with properties that are in contact with many, many atoms all the time. And so these superposition states tend to be destroyed in almost every one of our daily encounters. Um, why are you doing this? What are the potential applications? Well, one of the nice things that we can do is we can make extremely good clocks out of these. And extremely good clocks are very important because we can, for instance, measure things very, very well. But one of the things that we get from this is the global positioning system, GPS. GPS is made out of a series of satellites. Each satellite has an atomic clock on it. And those atoms are constantly being put in superposition states and that enables us to know how uh, the satellite is moving relative to our position, which tells us where we are. And uh, we're running out of time now. If Wes had more time, he would probably talk also about quantum computing, the potential future uh, super-fast computer. It's not good for all problems, but it's good for solving some problems, and it depends critically on electrons being in more than one energy level at one time. So that's the end of our quantum energy level story. Just think of it, inside every atom we know about, electrons are shuttling back and forth through all those energy levels. This podcast was brought to you by the Joint Quantum Institute. I'm Philip Shuey, along with my colleagues Steve Ralston and Wes Campbell. So long.